We are slowly getting to what I would have thought is the fundamental minimum that a real parliamentary democracy should be demanding, which is that this country is not going to be able to enter into a binding treaty commitment until its details have received full parliamentary approval. Kenneth Clark was one of 11 Conservative MPs who rebelled against their own party on Wednesday night to force the government to give Parliament a final vote on any Brexit deal. This week we're looking at what this means for the process of leaving the EU, but also what it says about the weakness of Theresa May. Plus we ask how much responsibility social media companies should have for removing offensive content. We look back on 2017 and we make some bold, in some cases very bold, predictions for 2018. It's all coming up today, Friday the 15th of December 2017, on Update the State. We are at the end of a year when sanity has sometimes uh, seemed to be in somewhat short supply, but on Tuesday night... The great state of Alabama in the United States uh, finally did the right thing, uh, defeating the Republican candidate for the US Senate, Roy Moore, who is an alleged paedophile, 51 to 49 in that Senate election. Still does raise the question of uh, 49% of people voting for him. But anyway, in any case, congratulations, Alabama. It's going to be possibly short-lived because there is another Senate election coming up uh, next year. Um, but we are going to talk about that and uh, what's going on in the US and around the world later on because this is our last uh, episode of the year uh, of this Update the State podcast. So we'll have plenty to reflect upon and to predict for the year ahead. But we've also got stories from this week to talk about. Dave Bradshaw here, uh, joined uh, as always by the Communications Director for Debate Mate, Alex Dugan. Alex, how are you? Good, thanks Dave. Just been back from Liverpool, missing the football, but it's good to be here. And how is how is Liverpool this uh, cold December? Liverpool was not snowing, which was surprising but it was cold okay like very cold and the pubs were full of fans when i left which was very annoying we're recording on a wednesday by the way this week so there was a liverpool game do you, do you, do you, want, to, do you want to state the reason why we're recording on a wednesday Dave? we're recording on wednesday even though the podcast goes out on friday because i am going to watch star wars tomorrow night thursday and that is far more important than anything that's going on in brexit so uh anyway we've got a newcomer to the show. He's, new he's an old friend of mine. We used to do student radio together. Uh, nowadays, he is a senior communications officer for an education consultancy, Francis Hamlin. Francis, how are you? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, Francis was hoping for some education questions today. <laughs> uh, we haven't been quite so generous, um, but that's because we're going to talk, as I said, about two, uh, two stories for the first half hour um, that are current, very much in the news this week, and then we're going to move on to some uh, reflections on the year that has been and some predictions for the year ahead. So you can hear the chimes of Big Ben with no further ado. Let's begin four segments of 15 minutes each on this, the final Update the State podcast of 2017. All right, so first one we're going to talk about is the big story of the week, or at least by Wednesday night when we're recording this, which is the, uh, the rebellion in the House of Commons on the EU withdrawal bill. That's the latest that's going on with Brexit. We're also, by the way, going to talk a little bit here about uh, the deal that was finally done uh, regarding the uh, Brexit divorce bill and the Irish border. That happened on Friday after we'd already recorded last week's episode. So we'll come to that in a minute. But first, let's start with this EU, with, with the uh, rebellion, the government rebellion. Uh, so the government losing uh, a vote on an amendment to that EU withdrawal bill, 309 votes to 305 on Wednesday night. Uh, a, a, an amendment suggested 
pr- proposed by a Tory, by Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General, uh, wanting to enshrine in law the fact that there will be a vote on any final deal before it is approved at the end of this whole negotiation process. Uh, Alex, what's your, what's your initial reaction to what's happened on, on uh, Wednesday? Well, it's incredibly embarrassing. <clears throat> I think that could be the first um, thing to say, in that it was a probably miscalculation from government that could have been avoided um, if the right provisions were put in place. And The other thing you have to question, though, however, is whether this actually means that much in a pragmatic sense. Because you can, you can imagine a point where the, uh, the deal comes to Parliament and it's a kind of, we've discussed this before, about like a, a, a win-lose, a clear win-lose situation where you either have no deal and the consequences of such, or a deal, and, but that's it. So you cannot change it. There's no going back to renegotiate with the EU. So does this actually fundamentally change what is going to happen in the endgame? I think it's unclear at, be- unclear at worst. And at best, it makes little difference. Um, so we'll see how it goes. But it is a positive embarrassment for the Conservative government. Um, despite Theresa May having had a good week, it's mm. brought that crashing down back to reality. I, I, want, I, I am quite confused as to how this happened. It's the first time that Theresa May has lost a, a parliamentary vote on a piece of the government's own business. They've lost some uh, opposition bills. Their policy mm. has been not to vote on those over the past, um, you know, year or so since, since she's been in power um but with with regard to most of their own business if, if, if there's been any kind of prospect of the government actually losing a vote then the theresa may and the government tend to have just caved to the to the rebels and and come up with some compromise so that they didn't have this public embarrassment so i'm not quite sure why this happened this time whether it was just a miscalculation on the part of Theresa May's team that this you know whether they just thought that the, these rebels Dominic Grieve and those who were backing him were just bluffing um, Francis what's your take on on how the government got to this rather public embarrassment I suppose what we're seeing is is um, the result of these um, rebelling Tory MPs not really believing in this kind of, come on guys, trust us, we'll do the right thing, argument, which is what Theresa May was putting forward and what Davis, D- David Davis was putting forward. You know, the, the Downing Street was promising, making this kind of, you know, guarantee of a meaningful vote, but without actually wanting to put it into law. Now you are putting it, uh, you know, writing it into the statute books. So you have to ask the question, if they weren't willing to do that, then how, how worthwhile was their promise that um, that they would that we they would keep this gentleman's agreement, and so mm. what we're seeing, as Alex rightly says, is embarrassment uh, for Downing Street, but probably actually it doesn't change all that much. No, I mean in terms of the actual process of Brexit and what it means for the for how smooth that whole procedure is going to be, I, maybe it doesn't mean very much. We'll talk about what it, what it maybe does mean mm. in, in a second. But is that what this is? Is this a a lack of trust then? We're, from the, from the Conservative backbenches towards their own Prime Minister because, as I understand it, there was a clause in the bill, in the original version of the bill, saying that the government could um, bring into law whatever the, uh, the deal was that was reached with the EU via secondary legislation, which is a type of, not to get too complicated and boring, but it's a type of legislation where there would be far less um, scrutiny from MPs, right, as opposed to needing a brand new Act of Parliament yeah. uh, to do it. And the amendment 
changed that and said, no, there will have to be an act of parliament. And so Theresa May was saying, we're going to put it in the, you know, we're going to, in the bill, it's going to say oh, we only need secondary legislation, but trust us, we've decided we're going to give you all a vote. So it sounds like Dominic Grieve and several other uh, Tories said, no, f- well, we don't believe you. Well, it's mostly Remain Tories, isn't it? Mm. This, but this rebel group is, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but the vast majority of whom are Remain backing. Now, what I find very funny in this situation is that a big part of the Leave campaign and what many Leave campaigners will tell you uh, post the election result, uh, sorry, post the referendum result, is that the referendum was not about immigration, was not about these things, it was about taking back control. Now, if you are to take back control from the EU, the motivation to do that was not to concentrate power in the cabinet, not to concentrate power in number 10 Downing Street, it was to bring it back to parliament as a whole. Now, can you imagine a situation where sweeping constitutional change is going to be brought about by secondary legislation, going to be brought about by statutory instruments? If you were to be put this forward, this level of lack of control mm. to those same MPs over previous battles, whether it be uh, about a budget, whether it be about uh, a new piece of health legislation, there would be uproar. Mm. However, what I find very funny in this situation is they seem willing to go for it at all costs, to get rid of procedure, to not see this as what it should be, which is that sweeping constitutional changes changes coming through, therefore it requires and should have the full procedure of an act of parliament to make this fundamental part of the British constitution of British law. And to find that Remainers are going for this as they would do, I find it somewhat comical that there aren't any leave people thinking the same if mm. they're to hold true to the principle of taking back control and vesting in Parliament, not in an unchecked executive. It's, it's, when, I, when I first heard that there was a possible rebellion going on with the bill, it, I did, it didn't occur to me that it was Remainers. Only when I started paying a bit more attention you know, sort of during the course of Wednesday that I realised who these people were. It was Dominic Grieve and Anna Subri and all these people who... I've been staunch Remainers in the past because I think Alex is right. It's, it, it seems to me that having a final vote on whatever this final Brexit deal is going to be suits Brexiteers possibly more than it suits Remainers because there's a lot of these hardline Brexiteers who would rather leave with no deal. So that gives them an opportunity to turn down the whole thing and walk away from the whole process. We wouldn't pay £45 billion or whatever was agreed at, at the end of last week. Why are these Brexiteers against it then? Um... Good question. Uh, you can understand why the the Remainers are in favour because um, it, the, for a long time it seemed like Downing Street was heading down towards down the line of a hard Brexit, and and having a meaningful vote in Parliament was going to give uh, the remaining the Remainer MPs a chance to claw back some little bit of of whatever was going to be agreed. Um, as with everything to do with Brexit, you know, you have to preface it with, well, we don't really know what's going on still. Um, we're beginning to get slight glimpses into what might be agreed and um, what happened this week regarding uh, EU uh, national uh, uh, EU member rights in the UK and, and uh, GP citizens' rights in the rest of the EU uh, is one thing. And, you know, obviously the Irish issue is ongoing, Um but, again, I want to say it doesn't actually change all that much. Can I just say, point out something that you've also mentioned in your previous answer? This notion of an agreed figure. If we're to believe the words of David Davis, this is not an agreed figure. 
This is a figure that may be paid, it may not be paid, it may be something that we go back on at a later stage, it may be something that we pay in full over a certain number of years, the terms of which are not enforceable. Now that, that, yeah, it's, like, it's like David Davis is this school bully who's yeah. actually not really much of a school bully, but he, he you know, he, he, he kind of taps a, a small child on the head and says, oh, I've beaten you up, and then goes back to his mates and brags about how tough he was to this child and beat him up and pushed him into the gutter. Um, and obviously that hasn't happened, but David Davis is obsessed with appearing but to be tough. In, and In his defence, though, isn't that sort of what... The, there's, a, there's a wing of the Tory party who wants that. They, want, they see that, you know, their whole attitude towards the EU is, oh, they're trying to rob us blind or whatever. They want someone who's going to go over there and talk tough. And so David Davis is, in a sense, in a very difficult position because he, when he's in the negotiating room, needs to build a relationship with the people he's negotiating with. But then when he's talking to his own party, he has to sound like he's the toughest man in the room. I can see how it's a calculated risk. I can see how it's, um, able, it's a, you're able to have Davis go out on Andrew Marr and say that, oh, it's fine, uh, it's not enforceable and these kind of things. And then for Theresa May to row that back later in the day and row it back on Monday. But it is an awfully big risk to take for um, maintaining unity within the Tory party. And what we are seeing somewhat, um, in this case, if this continues, this behaviour of antagonising the EU, but playing it on that line, at some point the EU going to turn around and say, fuck off, disappear, that's it, we're done. Like, there's no need for this to con- continue other than satisfying a group of 50, 40 to 50 Tory MPs who are just being a pain in the arse. Well, so let's talk a little bit about what this actually the, the result of this amendment could be in terms of the actual process and why it might be that Theresa May and the government didn't want to enshrine into law that uh, MPs will definitely get a vote on it. And as far as I can understand, the best reasoning why they didn't want to tie their own hands with that is depending on when they get to the point in the process when they are able to give MPs a vote. If it's too late in the process. For a whole, you know, for the time it takes for an act of parliament to go through, it could delay the whole deal and therefore derail the whole pro- the whole Brexit process. That is my best understanding of why they want that flexibility. Is that right? Yes, but as we've heard constantly throughout this week, nothing is agreed till everything is agreed, and presumably, um, if there is a meaningful vote in parliament, and that is part of the agreement, and if the meaningful vote doesn't back up the agree- the, the the deal, then nothing is agreed. Um, I don't know. We will see, won't we? Can you not see a situation, though, where it would be farcical for the negotiations to be thrashed out, for a deal to be sitting there ready to be rubber-stamped by... or not necessarily rubber-stamped, but uh, debated and then uh, validated by the various member states in Parliament? Mm. Now, can you not foresee a situation where comes back from the E27, it's fine, you're getting towards January 2019... You turn around to the speaker, who may or may not be John Burko at that stage, and say, right, we need to get this through. It's in the incentive of the speaker, it's in the incentive of all members of parliament and the government to make it happen. And we've seen a government who will try and bend corners to make it happen um, and to try and force things through. I can see a situation where... As Parliament, they make an active decision to table um, that legislation at expense of all others, to call extraordinary sessions and things like that, and do something to get it through. So this time time limitation of getting it through Parliament is a barrier, yes, but is a barrier that, with the right will, could be overcome if required. Now, in terms of the internal dynamics of of the Conservative Party and what this, this defeat, this rebellion, shows about... 
Theresa May's current position. Mm. Well, actually, first of all, let's talk about what it means in terms of Labour. Because one of the things that struck me during this debate that was going on in the House of Commons on Wednesday was that the whole thing was playing out like a kind of a psychodrama within the Conservative Party. So when Dominic Grieve was standing up and giving his big speech about why he was tabling this amendment... Um, the people who were interrupting him and heckling him and and arguing with him were his own party. And you had the the opposition benches just kind of sitting there with popcorn watching the whole thing. And although maybe they were happy to just watch the Tories tear themselves apart on it, it did somewhat strike me, and this is something we've talked about on the show before, that Labour are very, very quiet on Brexit. It is more proof, if if we even needed it, that that the Labour policy on this is to sit on the fence and do very little. Um... You know, Keir Starmer is clearly working hard and and had some interesting things to say, but his hands are tied to an extent in terms of what he can actually say and uh, as to what he would like to see happen in the future, because um, the Labour leadership clearly doesn't want to go there. They just don't want to talk about what they want to see because they are so worried about um, losing uh, votes on the hard left of the Labour Party. I mean, I... It is kind of baffling that we still haven't got a firm position from the Labour Party on it. But anyway, I mean, let's not talk about Labour because actually there's nothing really all that interesting to say about them. It's more of the same. But once again, we saw the Tory show um, all of today, as you say, in the House of Parliament, uh, in on TV, the interviews. It's been Tory infighting the whole time. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of boring. Um, but, uh, you know, it's going to carry on like that. This, this whole Brexit was started because of Tory infighting and, you know, we were going down the path of hard Brexit because of Tory infighting. You know, it looks like we're dragging slightly more towards a soft Brexit now and then, you know, who knows what will happen. But I can assure you that the decision will take a few more t- twists and turns based purely on what the two hands of the Tory party are wanting. I mean, last thing on this, but obviously it's uh, it's clear that this is an example of Theresa May's weakness and the fact that after the general election, which we know didn't go as she had planned, that you know, she no longer has a majority and therefore is incredibly vulnerable to these very narrow defeats by a small number of rebels. So that's not news. But what I wonder is actually, maybe in terms of the national interest, maybe that has been inadvertently a good thing. People talking about, oh, more chaos, there's no even government majority, that's going to be terrible for us as we go through this difficult Brexit process. But actually, it's meaning that Theresa May can't run things like a sort of a, a dictator, like a, you know, a, a dominant executive branch, if you want to put it in American terms. But she has to listen to Parliament. She has to take on board um, where there is cross-party consensus with some Tory rebels teaming with Labour. She can't ignore that now. And maybe what happened with this amendment passing is actually a very good thing. It's the subtext to everything so far. The 48% of people who's, uh, who voted for Remain are kind of quiet with, as, as a person who voted for Remain as well, quietly sitting here. And there are things you have to talk about. So you have to talk about this unity within government. You have to talk about the, um, the kind of chaos that's going on in internal Tory party politics. But as from a pragmatic sense, as the policy is working its way through and we're getting close to this March 2019 deadline, things are working into a much better stance and a much more uh, amenable position for your Remain voter. You're looking at a soft border um, with Ireland. You're looking at regulatory alignment with other areas of the uh, country, other areas of the EU. You're looking at possibly a bespoke financial services deal. If you spoke to people, quite a lot of Remain voters, I doubt they would say that when they before the election they thought immigration was fine. I doubt they would say that everything is fine and dandy with the EU. However, 
what this is doing is giving a slight degree of um, support within Remain uh, Remain voters. If you take as a given that Brexit is going to happen, then this is the far better position from a pragmatic Remain perspective than any other position that we could have feasibly got. And there are various players to thank for that, but hopefully this is one that will continue. All right. Well, obviously we will see how Brexit continues into the new year. This is a story that, as we've known, uh, since last or June last year was going to be uh, one that ran and ran, and there is no sign of this abating. I'm sure we're going to have many more Brexit discussions uh, on the show into 2018. But let's change the subject. There are other things going on, believe it or not. You wouldn't know it sometimes from the, uh, from the political news. But um, one of the things that is a, an ongoing theme, and there's been more news on it, uh, this week is this ongoing debate about the responsibility of social media companies uh, in terms of removing offensive or extremist content from their site. So the latest thing we've had um, this week was we've heard a lot about Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Now LinkedIn has been dragged into this. Um, <laughs> lectures by a radical Islamist cleric linked to the 9-11 attacks and, and other pieces of jihadist content uh, have been discovered on LinkedIn by the Tony Blair Institute of all uh, organisations who've discovered <laughs> this. Uh, uh, it was only on for a little while. Microsoft, uh, who own LinkedIn, have since mm-hmm. removed the content. But another example here of, as I say, of uh, social media companies being criticised by uh, those in politics for, in their view, doing too little to remove some of this content. Uh, now, according to the BBC in a report that came out on Tuesday, Google, uh, who own YouTube, Facebook and Twitter um, could be or, or should be held liable for illegal and dangerous content on their platforms. That's going to be what the uh, Committee on Standards in Public Life, the CSPL, will report to the government when it reports shortly. Uh, so the, the social media giants, the Googles and Facebooks of this world, have always claimed that they're kind of just a platform. They're a conduit for other people to upload media rather than a, a, a media producer in their own right. The argument, the counter-argument to that is, no, you seem to, you know, you are just as responsible for what goes on your site as the BBC or as um, newspapers are for what goes on within their own pages. Where do you see, where, where do you fall on this? Because I think this is going to be one of a debate that increases in ferocity as we go into the, the new year. This isn't a story that's, coming to an end it's one that's only just beginning um i with all things on social media i like to use the the pub argument um in other words if people are saying things on social media um that they wouldn't say in a pub um then you know should they be saying it there's no such thing as true free speech everywhere everything everywhere people think there is free speech there are limits imposed by society imposed by the environs imposed by the context um and if we go back to this pub, you know, you can hear some pretty obscene things being said by a pub, but a landlord in a pub will have will not think twice about kicking someone out of the pub if they're saying something that is too offensive. You have to decide who is the arbiter of offensive. Um, and I don't know how you go about doing that because different culture, you know, social media stretches across countries, continents, cultures, everything. Um, and different cultures feel very differently about certain things as we're already always hearing about. You know, people being arrested in Dubai for things that you you wouldn't think twice about in this country. Um, but you know, if if people are doing things that are perceived as being generally offensive, um, 
should they be held accountable or should the social media platform be held accountable? Well, actually, probably both. Um, but um, it's for lawyers, judges to decide, politicians to decide. But it, it can't carry on as it is. Mm. Um, there needs to be a change and there needs to be accountability. We'll get, we'll get on to the, the, the practicalities of, of how this will work in a minute, but just in terms of the general principle, Alex, do you agree, do you agree with what the government and some of the tabloids have been saying that social media companies need to take more responsibility for curating, uh, well, removing essentially offensive content on their sites? Or is that an unrealistic expectation? I think it's an unrealistic expectation, especially considering that most of these companies are not based in the UK. Um, entities and things like that to be harder to enforce and all those kind of things. On a principled level, however, I would find myself tending to agree that there are some lim- there should be limitations to what is published, that there should be areas in which it's more effectively policed. Um, there is I can't I remember there's a, a friend of a friend I think who worked um, this is anecdotal but who worked I think for YouTube. Um, I know you. I think you, you were talking about this, weren't you? It was, um, a friend was it a friend of yours who um, went down on who was on YouTube and his, his job for an evening was to take down the live football streams of Premier League games. Um, it wasn't me, but I've, I've heard similar stories. Yeah, they, they literally pay college students, um, university students here in the UK, in the US, wherever, to police YouTube and go through and take down live. Mm. Um, uh, streams of football matches that would be available on paid services elsewhere. Now, why do they care about this? Because they'll get sued by mm. rights companies. What is the what is the punishment for mm. failing to comply with these any any regulation at the moment? Very very little. Mm. It's effectively toothless. Therefore, to, in order to make these companies act, which I think they should, and what how well, the scope of which they act, I think is something that is. It should be in the public arena. It should be something that's discussed actively rather than passively as it is kind of at the moment. Um, and it's manifesting itself through election law, but we'll come, I imagine we'll come to talk about it in a second. Um, it has to be some kind of enforcement that is valid, that is something that is seen as a serious cost for failing to comply with the regulations. And at the moment, there's nothing there. And regardless of what the principle is, if you don't have an effective uh, enforcement mechanism, it's not going to happen. Well, let's, okay, let's take this back a couple of steps. So first of all, what you're saying about college students going through the, the content is a, is a good point, I think, because uh, I don't, sorry, I don't have the, the statistic in front of me, but I've seen things about YouTube, for example, that there's something like 100 hours of content uploaded to YouTube every minute. Yeah. So, I mean, how many thousands of people would you have to employ here? To mm. just to just to scour through everything that ever goes up on YouTube. That's that's one point. But even if we pretend for a minute that these social media companies could effectively regulate everything that's going up on their on their sites, how do we then determine or who determines what is offensive? So if I, if a government is going to say, oh, you need to take down offensive content within twenty four hours of it going up, um, unless they give very very precise instructions as to what counts as offensive and what doesn't then what we're essentially doing is making facebook or you know mark zuckerberg or or, or google or or twitter the The curators the the arbiters of of what is and isn't to be censored in our society and that can't be the outcome we're looking for that's the problem and that's why this argument hasn't come into the offensive so we we talk about um kind of hate speech we talk about um kind of uh, various different threats that are made against individuals who speak out on certain issues those whilst they are apparent whilst they are reported to the police they took quite a long time in dealing with them and things like that what's got politicians so pissed off and so up in arms with the media, social media companies at the moment is not this hate speech. It's not um, t- t- targeted um, threats against individuals. It is breaching election law. 
It is uh, foreign entities being able to purchase adverts that mm. influence the minds and the hearts of individuals all around the UK, all over the US. That's the only thing that is they, they, that is have as a re- I, I think from a perspective, from a pragmatic perspective, is the only thing. The reason why they're going into it is because the only thing that has a reasonable enforcement mechanism there in place. If you breach election law, then there's a problem. Now, saying that though, there's another another story on that specific thing that came out on, on Wednesday, talking about foreign entities mm. uh, paying for election adverts. Um, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, have found that only during the referendum campaign, this was a story that came up a few weeks ago, and there was there were claims that Russia had paid for a lot of pro-Brexit ads to appear mm-hmm. on social media. Now, according to Facebook and Twitter, I'm not sure what their methodology is or how reliable this report is, but they're saying there were only nine Russian Brexit ads uh, found by their own internal inquiries uh, during that referendum campaign, and therefore only a couple of hundred British voters would have been exposed to uh, to that content. So it might be that this stuff about election law and, and foreign intervention, in t- certainly in terms of Facebook and Twitter, is possibly being overblown. Yes, I, th- I think if you're looking for a direct link, that, that may be the case. But we already know that Russian fingers were in a number of other pies. Um, we, 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 there's already alleged, invo- alleged involvement with um, uh, Aaron Banks's uh, finances um, and uh, Russian elements and all kinds of things like that that will be turned over and turned over and and there will almost certainly be um, things to do with social media uncovered. But sure, if we're looking for a direct link, then okay, maybe nine adverts. The only thing I would add to what Alex was saying is, of course, and to what you were saying, Dave, earlier on, is, is that, of course, these are all publicly listed companies and actually they're only genuine responsibility is towards their shareholders mm-hmm. um and so you have to ask the question well what will, what can be done to make the shareholders pay note uh, pay attention and uh, also it's quite sorry to interrupt but it's also kind of terrifying what, what alex said a minute ago as well which is that um there's a limit to what what could be done even if there did need to be something done because these are not in most cases british-based companies right and so they still have to, I mean, these social media companies still have to adhere to certain laws in the countries that they operate. What, what, you, I mean, look at look how, how social media operates in yeah. China, for well, example. I mean, you, you, know, can't, you can't find them because their tax bases, their money, monetary bases is not yeah, based I mean, oh, you could, there. Are, there are things that you could do, and if the social media says, no, your, your punitive measures are too much for pulling out, and you know, there may well be public uproar if Facebook pulled out of the UK. Um, I I'm, going say, I'm going to say not Facebook. I mean, for, you know, Facebook, the Facebooks and Googles of this world have maybe reached such a size that they, that they would damage them to leave the UK. But there will be other social media sites that are maybe not quite as big yet that don't have any offices in the UK. And the only way you could punish them from a UK perspective, given that they, they don't pay taxes here and they don't have any employees here, they don't have any operations here, that the only way you could do anything about it would be to block access and we're not going to start doing that are we why not we there are there are things that have access blocked to them you know videos on youtube you know if it's done to individual accounts individual individual videos why why couldn't it be done to a whole platform is that ali we really want to start going down we're going to block websites that are legal in other countries because because they're not based here so we can't punish them you you start a website now telling people how to make a bomb and i think it will be blocked within a few hours i mean it already happens Hmm. um I don't think I don't think we're going to go down that route, but I, you know, it, it happens. If there's something that's really offensive or really illegal that appears on social media, it would it would disappear. If a whole platform was um, crawling with offensive and illegal material, then mm. the platform would disappear. 
But let, I mean, but, but, I, but if, if if that was a website solely devoted to that kind of thing, yeah. yes. But if it was a if it was a social media website where there were ten million users publishing things on all kinds of things, it was a very popular site, and there also happened to be one or two people posting stuff about how to make a bomb. Yeah. And because it's not British based, our government decided to ban access to it, so British citizens can't see those other thousands of articles that the rest of the world's looking at. That's not something we're plausibly going to do, is it? I wouldn't rule it out. I think I think it's unlikely. I agree, but I I really think we are in terms of the age of the internet. We are we are kind of almost preconception at this point. We know so little about what we're doing. We're still trying to deal with the internet like it's it's printed media. I mean, it's so completely different, mm. um, and we really haven't got a grasp on it grasp on it at all. And I think we are going to gradually get there, but we need to get over this idea that it is free speech. Oh. It's not free speech, and it shouldn't be treated as free speech. Um, Alex, I'll give you the last word now, but maybe, maybe we're t- looking at this from the perspective of just using a very blunt tool, because the, the whole debate here we've had is just about legislation. Maybe legis- you know, legislation isn't always the answer. Maybe the, the situation we have now perhaps is the best, best solution we're going to have, where it's not, it's not going to be you know, forced on social media companies by law what they have to do, but there is pressure. There's pressure from the traditional press, there's pressure from from politicians, market forces, exactly you talked about the importance of shareholders. If enough users and if enough negative coverage comes from uh, social media companies' tolerance of extreme content, then maybe they will take it upon themselves to change their ways and maybe legislation is not going to be needed. The nature of extreme content is that it's so far after the norm that it attracts viewers and it attracts various clicks and whatever things there. So I don't, unless this pressure is insurmountable, unless this pressure is really going to destroy this social network, then I can see very little action being done. Just to caveat the report that you talked about earlier, um, I think it should be mentioned that MPs have said that Facebook and, and Twitter, whoever compiled this report, only looked at accounts previously linked to electoral interference in the US election and that they have demanded the com- that the company carry out a comprehensive UK-focused investigation. Um, so even then, if you take what the MPs say to be true, which <laughs> trusting MPs in many things at the moment is slightly questionable, but if you take what they say to be true, it shows another example of a, a social network being asked to look into something, there's a p- potential interference, potential violations of, of various laws and things like that, and failing to do so in a comprehensive manner that answers the question that's being asked. And therefore the trust in these companies, I believe, is very low at the moment amongst elected politicians. All right, and again, that's another story that will run into uh, the new year. Now, I want to, speaking of the new year and, and, and the old one, let's talk a little bit uh, about the year that we've had, because... I remember at this time last year, well, we weren't doing a podcast this time last year, but certainly... We were drowning our sorrows. We were, we were dr- exactly. We were looking at back at 2016. Um, I think all, all three of us were Remainers, right? Uh, certainly all three of us were anti-Trump. Um, most people <laughs> I know were both of those things as well. And by common consensus, 2016 was the worst political year um, of any of our lives, I think, pretty much. Seemed to be what people were saying. Um 2017, it seems to me, uh, has been a little bit more about the consequences of 2016 uh, in terms of the, the, the politics of the year. So my basic question, and we'll expand on this, but my basic question really is, has 2017 been better or worse than 2016? 2016 was shock and horror. You know, we were, it was the metaphorical stabbing, you know, uh, it was painful, it was devastating it was traumatic it was all those things and not just politics i mean trump obviously um was 
pretty appalling, particularly if you're stateside. But also, you know, the whole Brexit referendum, the campaign leading up to it and the actual result, you know, was was appalling and, and such a shock for so many people. Um, you know, there were other things that tinted, to say the least, 2016. You know, David Bowie, George Michael. Oh, but yeah, people forget about that now. You know, yeah. but last year in December, we were talking about how 2016 had been a, a slew of celebrity yeah. deaths. This year, we're talking more about a slew of celebrity sexual allegations, it feels like. Certainly. But, um, it, yeah. It, you know, oh, not to mention uh, Snape from Harry Potter. Um, you know, it was it was like one kind of dart of pain after another. Um, whereas, as you rightly say, 2017 has been much more about um, dealing with with that pain, dealing with the the trauma of it all. Um, not so many shocks, but just dealing with the fallout of it. You know, 2016 took us to that low. And we're pretty much still at that low, but we haven't really got much lower. Um, and so, you know, it's been facing the reality of Trump now. We all had ideas of what it might lo- might actually be like. And he's probably come quite close to what we imagined. Um, the the interminable nonsense surrounding Brexit and, and the Conservatives dealing with Brexit and swinging between hard and soft Brexit. Again, you know, the Brexit vote already happened. We're already at that shockingly low point and we've just been kind of twirling around it for most of this year. Boris Johnson embarrassing us on a world stage repeatedly. Um, The general election, which we kind of forget about, but it it happened. Um, The baffling response of uh, Jeremy Corbyn supporters to him losing a general election... Um, you know, all these things that have kept us at this low point haven't really picked us up as we had hoped they might. You know, we kind of all hoped for an uplift at some point. I personally hoped that Brexit would all fall apart during 2017. Seems like we're going to get to the end of the year and that hasn't happened. But, you know, nothing has really brought us back up. We're kind of still scrabbling around. Well, let, me, let, me, let me question that assumption a little bit. There's been a few things that I think have gone better than maybe predictions were saying they might in, I'm interested in, to hear what in you have 2017. To say. Well, for one thing, um, this time last year, we were all talking about an upcoming French presidential election where there was a, a strong possibility in a lot of people's minds that the far right and Marie Le Pen were going to become French president. So there's actually been a resurgence of, of the centre in France. And, uh, Emmanuel <laughs> Macron... Have you seen that? Well, yeah, but, well, true, but that, happens, that seems to happen to every French president. The fact is he won the election. I mean, we could be in a much worse position as far as that goes. And the other thing um, is that for all of the horrors of, and the debasing of public debate that happens on a daily basis by Donald Trump, which I think is probably the most depressing thing about 2017, probably worse than, than the ongoing Brexit talks, which are pretty horrendous. Um, but for all of that... There are signs uh, towards the end of the year, including, of course, this week, that Trump's grip on on the American soul, if you like, is, is loosened. For, for a Democrat to win a Senate seat in Alabama, the first time that's happened in 25 years. Now, I grant you there were extenuating circumstances <laughs> because the, uh, the Republican candidate was controversial, to say the least. But Trump threw his full support behind him in the end. Uh, Steve Bannon certainly threw his full support uh, behind him, and yet he lost in the most red of red states, the most conservative state imaginable, uh, Alabama. That surely is a good sign. Not not a a 100% definite sign, Alex, but a good sign 
that one year from now, or less than a year from now, when the Americans go to the midterm elections, that this Trumpism could be very severely weakened and the Democrats might retake control of Congress. Let's take us back eight years and let's imagine we are sitting in Alabama, we are conservative Republicans, and we're discussing the year that's just gone past. We've just been, we've probably been talking about, significantly talking about Obama and how he's horrific for the country, how the ideals, this Obamacare thing is, is terrible. And how, and there may have been a couple of special elections that have happened. There may have been a few little bits and pieces that have provided some hope. Now, how is that any different to now? You look at this contrast. Yes, Democrats are competitive and have won in Alabama. That's fantastic. If we discount, if we try and discount this Roy Moore effect as such, which is hard to quantify and things like that. Yes, granted. Mm. But even before it once before these allegations, Doug Jones was competitive, but he was not going to win. So, yes, competitive is a step forward, but it's hard to differentiate this, this kickback against a Republican government as a whole, as a legislature and an executive, from what happened to Obama in uh, 2009-2010, where in office getting significant kickbacks the entire time. The 2010 midterms Mm. were a shocker for the Democrats. So how is that drastically different to the situation that we're in. Yeah, see, I don't think it's entirely analogous, and I'll give you a, cu- a couple of reasons why. First of all, when, Do- when Obama won in 2008, he won in a landslide. Uh, Trump lost the, nas- the uh, popular vote by a couple of million votes. And secondly, Obama- Obama's personal approval ratings at this point in his presidency were far higher than Donald Trump's are. So if I was a... Well, I was. <laughs> if I was a Democrat in 2009, 2010, let's say 2010, straight after the midterms, mm-hmm. they were depressing, but I didn't think, you know, oh my God, this is terrible. If I'm a Republican at the moment, seeing how badly things are going downhill since Trump's become president, I would be worried about an existential threat to my party in the next three years. The existential threat to the party in the next three years comes from within. Mm. It, oh, of course, it, yeah. It comes from exactly, well, not exactly as the Tory party is going at the moment, but two clashing wings of the party smashing everyone and trying to pull everyone to pieces. Mm. Um, and at the moment, they have no, the identity of the Republican Party is one of crisis, and one of which you speak to two different elected politicians, and they would not give you the same answer on the policies if you were talking to them off the record and actually listening to their own opinions. Mm. So, <clears throat> yes, 2017 has been a good step forward for, at the end of the year, for American politics. It's been good that Trump has been able to do very little. <clears throat> However, um, the one area where he has some sway is foreign policy. We look at the withdrawal from Paris. We look at <clears throat> various different things that have the uh, ability to happen going forward. And it still raises questions over how, um, how placid these next three years of the Trump presidency are going to be. Last thing on the American part of this, because we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Britain as well. But just to go back to being a bit more negative, <laughs> one year... Back. Well, I was, being, I was trying to be positive. Yeah. Um, one year of Trump in, in office, and as I said a minute ago, day after day after day, the, the crudeness, the lack of basic dignity and, and respect that he brings to political discourse... Um, I think is on a daily basis corroding the quality of, of of public debate in the United States and by association here and in the rest of the of the developed world. Um, 
if this goes on for another three years, as it presumably does unless he gets impeached, how much permanent damage does that do to the health of our, of our democratic system? When I say our, I mean the West, America and the rest of its you know, similar countries culturally. I don't think it will do too much damage. I think, I think the US uh, political structure is strong enough to withstand it. In fact, it will go on to be a, a winning in, uh, example of democracy when Trump loses, um, let's hope, in three years' time. Um, likewise, I think, I think we will... We, are we seeing the kind of the fall of um, populism? Perhaps, you know, if what happened in France is, is going to be reflected elsewhere in Europe, maybe, maybe we're seeing that, you know, intelligent democracy is... Um, or intelligent democratic actions um, and it, politics are going to be coming back to the fore. Um, but... I, I'm no expert in American politics. I th- I think um, usually my attitude when these things go badly wrong, such as uh, Trump being elected, Brexit, is kind of batten down the hatches, make it through this, and next time there's a chance for democracy to have its say, try again. But what you can hope from this is that there could potentially be a reshaping of the political class. Um, you've got a swathe of voters who have voted in an expression of despair for politicians, for parties, for individuals who are appealing to exactly the pains that they are experiencing. Now, if, that, if, if the populist side of things are not getting things done, the job of other parties is to come and take those voters and show them why voting for them is going to alleviate the pains that they feel the whole point of democracy it's the entire whole point of democracy and the thing you get from that is if you motivate people who are on this popular side maybe you can show them a way that your pains will be alleviated if you do this you have a big potential for uh, elected officials to come from that group of voters to come from that group of voters to experience the exact pains that they want to alleviate to experience the exact things that politicians now should be addressing that they want to fix, and the route they do that is to come into government, and it is to be an elected official. And you can only hope that this helps to reshape a political class in a, in a way that is beneficial for the upward mobility of people in society. Um, let's talk very briefly, I can hear the chimes, but let's just stay on this just for a, a minute or two, because I want to go back to the British uh, context and look at 2017. Obviously, the big story in Britain, other than the ongoing uh, debates about Brexit, was Theresa May's decision to call a general election. Um, We've already touched on this a little bit earlier in the show, but that decision was reached because she wanted to increase her majority, and in the end, she ended up losing it entirely. Does this mean that British democracy in general is in a healthier position at the end of 2017 than it was at the start? Oh... Impossible question to answer. I think um, it shows that we have a democratic system that works. Um, as a democratic nation, I can't say that we are in a particularly healthy place. Um, and that, that has as much to say, to, uh, is, is as much to do with the Labour Party as it is to do with the Conservatives. So, let, me, let me rephrase the question a little bit. I don't mean on a, on a, I don't mean on like a meta level, does it mean the health of our democratic system? But I mean, in, in, in terms of for the duration of this parliament, however long that's going to be, is it better to have almost a hung parliament except for this DUP deal, or would it have been better 
for there to be a firm government with a firm majority, even if it's a conservative one that we might not always agree with? But personally speaking, no. Um, I Anything that undermines the conservatives, I see as a positive. Even if it means great instability? It's not great instability, though, is it? <laughs> Theresa May is going to stay in power until after Brexit has been passed, because no one wants her job. If you have a situation like this, if you have a situation where no one has a clear majority, I would far rather it be this. And from a Remainer perspective, Labour were never going to win that last election. And to be honest, Labour probably wouldn't have put forward a comprehensive view. Well, it would, would have had to put a com- forward a comprehensive view of Brexit. I still wouldn't have backed them to carry it off in a reasonable fashion. But from a Remain perspective, from a pragmatic Remain perspective, this is the best outcome you could have hoped for from that election. OK, now, lastly... Uh, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, I want to talk in this last segment, leading on from what we've just reviewed about the year we've had, let's have some predictions uh, for 2018. Be as bold as you like. We'll listen back to this in 12 months and see <laughs> just how wrong we were. Shall I go first? Yes, go on. I'll go first. This, I'll get, so I'm going back to the American uh, system here, but I will tell you, uh, we've just heard in the last well, a week ago that Times Person of the Year this year was the uh, the silence breakers, the women who came forward with um, allegations of, of sexual harassment. Next year's Time Person of the Year will be Robert Mueller. Whoosh. Who, Whoosh. by then, his investigation into Trump will have we- reached a crescendo Wouldn't and be great? may possibly have forced a president from office. Can't see it happening. I mean, as I said, I am no uh, uh, expert on American politics. But I just cannot see it happening. Why not? I think maybe... I don't know why. I just, I just think it's so improbable. Um, there are so many uh, things at work, th- powers at play in American politics. I, I would love to see it happen, but I, I think if he goes, he will go in three years' well, time. Okay, but then where does, where does this... Because one way or another... We can see in recent times, you know, um, most recently with Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, clearly what Mueller is doing is going up the, the totem pole, up the mm. ladder, trying to reach the top. And he's doing, you know, striking plea bargains with, with these various people who, who are going to um, essentially rat on people higher up the chain in order to save themselves. Um, so one way or another, that seems to be a strategy. Clearly, it's going to all come to a head in 2018. So if you don't see it end in the way I've just predicted, um, Alex, I'll come to you though, but how, how, how does this Mueller thing play out? You have out? to question whether it's impeachable. Is what Mueller is going to produce, which he will produce something at the end of this uh, investigation, is it going to produce an impeachable offence? Now, impeachable is, unfortunately, a subjective term in this debate. Um, it depends who has power of the Senate and the House. And the House is not going to change enough to be a Democrat. I doubt it will change. That's a prediction for 2018. Don't think the House is going to change enough to be Democratic. The Senate better chance of it considering the need to swing to yes they're defending quite a Although few they're, they're, yeah, they're yeah, defending, defending, a defending a lot but there's an opportunity to swing a couple and I think that's a possibility in the grand scheme of things now if it is a serious offence if we go beyond obstruction of justice something a more serious offence than that then it's very I can see it being very difficult for California Republicans for uh, those based on the on the east coast to sit there and be for Trump and not and block the impeachment proceedings. If it gets to the Democratic Senate, then that's a more questionable thing. Will Trump resign? No, he'll never resign. He'll be impeached and be thrown out of office kicking and screaming. Then another option for Mueller is if 
he talks to some people and it's not impeachable. It's not. It depends on what political sphere he's looking at. Mueller could um, wait until Trump is out of office. It could be a sealed uh, indictment. And as soon as Trump leaves on uh, potentially, what, January... Is it January 20th? Is that when it is every year? The, the, whatever, January, whatever day it is in 20... Hopefully in 2021. Uh, 20, um, it could be something that is immediately slapped an indictment on Trump and then he's charged as that when he's not uh, part of the executive. Now, that's been a long rambling answer, but is there a potential for Bimola to be person of the year? The answer is yes. However... Is it a realistic possibility? It depends on the political landscape that's going in front of them, and I don't think the House will swing enough for that to be the but, case. But, see, I can see a situation where what you're talking about is a possibility that Trump, after leaving the presidency, faces an indictment, yeah. and therefore he also strikes a, a, a bargain at the very top of the chain with Robert Mueller and resigns the presidency in exchange for... Not having to go through those proceedings. You yeah. think Trump will resign? I don't think Trump I, well, will resign. I, not easily, but I mean, it depends how far this goes, doesn't it? it, it dep- yes, it does. I imagine. But okay, can you, are the Trump White House competent enough to have discussions with various members of Congress and various leaders and sit there and find out exactly what the landscape is? They seem not to be able to do it with health care. They yeah. seem not to be able to do it with this tax bill. Yes, they passed it through the Senate, but that was due to Senate work. That was not due to the president or the president's team doing anything. I don't see a competent top level of the White House. You also have to question how many of them will be left <laughs> by that point next year. I question whether there's a competent level of the White House that is able to f- ac- accurately discern whether the president will be fully impeached. By the way, I'm not, I don't, my prediction, just to be clear, is not that Trump will have left the presidency by the end of next okay. year. I think, I, think, I, think this, I think the Democrats will take control of the Senate, mm. and I think Mueller's inquiry will have reached a point where, given that the Democrats are about to take power in the Senate... He, his actions have got to the brink of toppling a presidency mm-hmm. and for that reason he possibly wins the award. Anyway. Can I just ask is, I mean as, as I said someone who doesn't know a huge amount about American politics is there a situation where actually Mueller could um, have accusations levelled at pretty much everyone except Trump and Trump who has been existing in his strange little bubble of oblivion has been has gone through the whole presidential campaign, gone through his first year in the White House, really not knowing all that much about the strings that are pulling things around him. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Of course, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that's possible here. We're going to move on, though, because we've only had my prediction. Okay. And we're not going to talk about just mine, because then I'm the only one who can look like a fool. Uh, who wants to go next? Francis, you're gonna, it's got to be at least as bold as mine. OK, I think Brexit will actually collapse in 20, 2018. I, I think... Um, and, and if I I'll put a slightly softer um, edge on that, perhaps if it doesn't collapse, we will have <laughs> we will have a Brexit in name only. It won't actually change anything. What I would say, um, and, and I'd be interested to know if you two agree with me, is that actually, it, when we reach our final deal and it's it's chosen, and we a Brexit either collapses or we leave the EU, if nothing else, the whole Brexit debacle that we've been through will be a tremendous PR piece uh, to stop people wanting to come and live in this country, stop people wanting to come and work here from the rest of the EU. God knows what it will do for people outside the EU, but I think it will have put an awful lot of people off coming to this country because if nothing else, the Brexit vote said the UK does not like foreigners. So I think I think that is, we've already seen it with the latest migration figures that came out a week ago. Um, we, we will see a continuation of that, whether Brexit happens or not. Um, I think Corbyn will sit on the fence for as long as he possibly can. 
Um, I I think we could be at this point next year and still not know what the Labour Party policy on on all this Brexit stuff is. So explain to me the more radical version of your prediction yeah. is that Brexit collapses. Yep. You then backpedaled furiously. Uh, but <laughs> if it was to collapse entirely, give me the scenario. Explain to me how that happens. The scenario is is um, a bit a bit confused. I I admit, but essentially there are all kinds of things that we can't foresee happening such as another general election, such as another referendum, such as, you know... Are you predicting either of those? Uh, I wouldn't rule them out. But, you know, who knows what's going to happen in Some Europe? Corbyn-esque fencing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've given you my big, bold prediction, which is what you asked for. <laughs> and, then, um, and then argued against it for five yeah. minutes. Can I, can I jump in and give you some, give you some, uh, some live odds from, from Paddy Power that we endorse all uh, betting apps? Um, not, not to gamble responsibly, people. Um, the, uh, in terms of what predictions we've had so thus far, uh, in terms of there being a general election next year, Paddy Power has that at two and a half. If we are talking um, about, um, so I, I do work in decimals because I don't understand odds. Five but to two. W- five to two. There we go. Five to two. Um, so if, so a, a two in seven chance. Something along those lines. That sounds about right. If you say so. So if we <laughs> this is poor maths. <laughs> yeah. But if you were dividing a pie into like seven. Two point five to one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So again, it's yeah. not yeah. less than fifty percent. Significantly yes. less. Than um, 50%. But uh, for Theresa May to perform a Brexit U-turn in 2017, or uh, and in 2018, there's a different one. But, uh, but Bre- Theresa May to perform a Brexit U-turn and announce the UK will remain in the EU is over fifty to one, really? which is a big call. I big ball. I should put some money on it over there. And um, in terms of let's go back to Trump. If we just for briefly for uh, balance here, will Trump be impeached in his first term? Uh, one point five seven. Is the thing. Well, that's know. better than evens. That's better. Two is evens. That's better. So. Yes, that's better than that. Wow. Um, that Trump is impeached in 2018. It's two to one. Um, so, Dave, you, but so far, my prediction looks. Makers are saying that you're on yeah. track here. My prediction is is uh, significant. 25 times more likely to happen than Francis is according, <laughs> according to those odds. Right, Alex. Time for yours. Uh, my prediction is not as bold. Perhaps potentially not as bold. Um, um, other than United win the Premier League, although I shouldn't say that. Some <laughs> words somewhere in this room, in this studio. No, no, it's all fake words. <laughs> yeah. um, it's fake news as well. Yeah. Shut up, Tottenham, they're going to win. Um, anyway, uh, my prediction for at least the start, I would say in the first half, in the first quarter of 17, the first three months of 2017, is that Boris Johnson is replaced as Foreign Secretary. Uh, I think that everything will come to a point where he no longer speaks accurately for the UK. I think especially when we're going into Brexit negotiations where every single 27 member state, every single individual 27 EU state matters. Boris cannot sit there and have a slip up with the Polish, cannot sit there and slip up, <laughs> have a slip up with the Spanish or the Italians or any one of them for that matter, because that directly adversely impacts our ability to make a deal and to get it signed off by all the legislature. All you need is to piss off a small region of Belgium and then Brexit is derailed. You cannot trust such a gaff prone politician to be in that role well he's very gaff prone he's already made a lot of gaffes and yet he hasn't been but sacked yet so is he unsackable but the impact is very has been uh, i'd hate to say n- not minimal but national has it caused a national pr- hmm. problem on a big international trade deal or a big international treaty or something like that no yes it's far from ideal that he's being a, being an idiot and have, did the stuff in iran i think he was sent there on his bike to reason to get over to iran now you have no option to just go and apologize and go and sort this shit out i think that's happened i don't think she trusts him to be in the position of such importance 
going for I, it. No, I agree. Your logic is flawless, except that I don't think she's in a powerful enough position think, I, to, I, I, to execute it's that. True, I don't think he. Long, I don't think he. And it's, I don't think he any longer speaks for the Brexit wing of the party. I think other people are starting to he rise forward. Himself. He does he, indeed. I, he don't you think if so? Let's okay. If this happened, if Theresa May did a cabinet reshuffle and moved Boris Johnson from Foreign Secretary, even to, even if it's something like education or health, that's still not really one of the big four positions in government. You know, we we generally refer to. Prime Minister, Chancellor, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary is the, the four big beasts, right? Yeah. So anything other than that would be seen as a demotion for Boris. Yes. Do you think, to re- honestly, do you think Theresa May can do that and survive given how many Boris sympathisers there are on the Tory backbenchers? Yes, because she'll put in, some, in place someone who will be, uh, I imagine, more competent, someone who will still command that level of respect. If you talk about the, the big four, mm. she's not leaving anytime soon because no one wants a job. Really, they, they all say they do, but they don't want it. You've got Hammond, who has survived a very, uh, a, a, what was a well-performing budget for him. You've got Amber Rudd, who she will never get rid of, who has, um, who's done a pretty effective job in, in, the, in the Home Office by all accounts and is probably more competent at the big four at the moment. And then Boris, who is, who is a potential liability, a real potential liability for everything going forward, and especially when foreign policy is the thing under the spotlight, where in usual times, foreign policy is not the big thing that people care about, whereas now it is in the focus, and even uh, and uh, David Davis is, is going for some stick as well. I don't think Boris can handle it. All right, well, we will find out. We're out of time, I'm afraid. Um, but we will find out exactly what happened. So hold us to account at the end of 2018. Um, if, if, if Robert Mueller has not been the star of the year, if Brexit has not collapsed, and if Boris Johnson is still Foreign Secretary, then <laughs> feel free to send us as many abusive tweets as you like. Uh, that's just about, just about going to do it, not just for this episode, but for uh, 2017 as a whole. We're not here for the next couple of weeks because it's Christmas, and of course Parliament uh, is in recess during that time. So we're going to be back on Friday the 12th of January. In the meantime, though, uh, just a couple of other reminders. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at Update the State. Our blog site is updatethestate.org. We are on both SoundCloud and on iTunes. Uh, Links to both of those are in the description. And that's just about going to do it. Francis, how did you enjoy your debut? Great. Yes, really enjoyable. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Alex, a pleasure, as always. Thank you for all of your uh, contributions during 2017. Uh... And that's about it. So as I said, we're back on the 12th of January. In the meantime, I've been Dave Bradshaw. Thank you for listening, not just this week, but all year, uh, to our various podcasts from Update the State. Update the State.